Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the joy of this body, the joy of serving it and the joy of being a part of it. I thank you, Father, that you put it together. And I thank you for growing it and caring for it and shepherding it in the way you desire, to the place you have selected, to the purpose you have uh, designated. Father, we thank you for the sovereign will and power of a God who loves us enough to include us in the work that he does. And Father, we ask that our opportunity to serve would never turn to haughtiness or pride and thinking that you need us or that we have offered something to you that you couldn't have obtained otherwise. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you remind us of that in the fact that you surprise us with your grace and with the power that you display in our lives and the, the wisdom that you bring to decisions that we at the time may think are wrong and then in hindsight we realize how wise they were. Father, that's the, the kind of God we want to serve, a God who is bigger than us in every respect, a God who looks at the problems of our life and knows that they are not problems at all but opportunities and the means by which we will be sculpted and molded into the image of Christ. Thank you, Father, for that privilege. And Lord, in your word today, we learn how it is you care for the least among us, and we ask, Father, that we would gain that heart out of your word today and help us to live it out in the days and weeks to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm pleased to say that we land today on a much more pleasant topic than we were on last week. If you were here last week, you know what I mean. Uh, as we happened upon the text of Matthew 19, we came initially to the topic of divorce. We covered that. And this week we move out of that into a new topic, back to a topic that Jesus has brought up now on a, multiple occasions, that, that is on the kingdom of God and on entry into the kingdom of God. And there are two moments now that follow in this chapter, one we study today and one we'll get to next week that reflect a moment in the course of his ministry in which he finds opportunity to teach his disciples more about what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven, who will be there, etc. The first of those today comes after a moment in which Jesus has been having the discussion we saw last week, and immediately into that moment, a mother brings a child and interrupts the proceedings, and that's where we go right now. Verse 13, it says, Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Well, let me set the scene as I like to do for you guys. If you can imagine from where we were last week, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. They're <clears throat> embroiled in that difficult conversation on the biblical rules of divorce, and then in the middle of that moment, there's a mother, we presume, bringing a child before Jesus, expecting that Jesus would lay hands on that child. Now, we know from last week that Jesus is in Perea, and Matthew said that while he was in this region, he was being followed by large crowds who were seeking healing. And so it must be, as the, we must assume then, that some of the mothers who had children in need of healing were in and amongst that crowd. And obviously, if the crowd is big, if it's pushing toward Jesus, you've got to fight your way to the front. And I would imagine that some of these mothers, determined to see their children healed, have picked them up in their arms and are just bullying their way through the crowd to get to the front. And at some point, some determined mother makes it all the way to the front of that line, and she's not deterred by the fact that these men are in, involved in this very serious conversation. She doesn't care. She throws the child, so to speak, into the lap of Jesus. And as that happens, you see the disciples rebuke. Now, it says rebuke them. I don't think they rebuke the children, though maybe they did. 
I hear it as them rebuking the women for interrupting the proceedings with the children and to doing, for doing it on, on something very trivial, for the needs of a child. Let me explain why that was their attitude. In this time of history, and in the culture of this part of the world, men stood above women and children. Men made all the decisions, men owned all property, they ruled over their homes, and they ruled over the nation. They were the judge in all matters, and they possessed all authority. And women and children took a back seat in all affairs. Now, for some, you might cynically say, well, not much has changed in all that time, I guess, but let me say this. It is very different today, despite whatever opportunities still lie in front of us. It was very different in that day than it is today. Children, and especially children, occupied a very low station in societal pecking order. Now, parents loved their kids. I mean, they weren't any different than us in that respect, but they saw a child's place in the home and in society very differently than we do today. It starts, I think, with the fact that infant mortality was much higher than it is today. And childhood diseases were more common, and they often took children's lives at an early age. And I think the reality of all of that led to a certain perspective on children that you don't give them too much consideration until they reach adulthood. You hope for that, certainly, but until they're an adult, children were treated more like servants in the home, and you waited for adulthood before you gave them much attention, which means that a child had no privilege or prominence in the home, and they had no you know, importance in any gathering. They were never the center of attention. Uh, they, the, the adults never deferred to the needs of a child. They were always in the background. I'm gonna give you a quick example of that. You remember the story of Joseph and Mary when they go to Jerusalem and they leave and they happen to misplace Jesus on the way home. Remember that? And they have to turn around another day's walk. They're gone for two days. It takes them a day to walk and discover he's missing and then another day to walk back to find him. And you and I, if we were in that situation, first of all, we would think that's a parent that needs to go to jail, right? And then even if you allow for that, you would still think what a panic moment that would be. Well, I'm sure they were worried about their son, but I doubt it was like you would be today. Because children in that day, just they were given to being alone more and to being on their own more, and parents didn't worry quite at the same level that we do today. Maybe it was just a different time. But in any event, children just didn't have that level of importance. And then add to that the fact that in Judaism, children were not seen as candidates for religious conversion or even for having the need of God's mercy. First of all, every Jew thought that a Jew was included in the kingdom of God merely for the fact that they were born Jewish. So the idea of converting a child to, to the kingdom made no sense. And then on top of that, children had no place in adult religious life because until a child reached adulthood, they were exempt for the most part from any kind of Jewish religious rituals. Not until the boy had his bar mitzvah at age 13, or a girl had her bat mitzvah at age 12, were they able to participate in Jewish religious life? Now, knowing what we know about God and about the Bible, we might ask this question at this point. We might say, well, weren't they worried about how God dealt with their sins, that is, with the child's sin? But you have to understand, they didn't understand that a child had sin. In fact, the Jewish teaching, rabbinical teaching of the day, was that the sins of a child rested on the father until the father was old enough, or until the child, rather, was old enough to be considered an adult, which is why, as part of the ritual on, the child's, on, a, on a son's bar mitzvah, there's a moment in the bar mitzvah where the father says a prayer of thanks to, the, to God that the son's sins no longer rested on his shoulders after that day. Uh, it's just an interesting way of thinking about how God worked, right? So the culture of the times in which these disciples grew up said that children were never to factor into any expectations for religious service. 
Which means this, when they thought about serving Christ in the kingdom program, whatever they understood about that, it never dawned on them that the kingdom program would include children as candidates for the gospel. And then you have this moment, a mother bringing a a child, interrupting Jesus during an important exchange on divorce, and as a result, the disciples react in a very predictable way. They stop that breach of etiquette with a rebuke. Now, a rebuke, you have to understand the Greek, that's a very strong term. It, It isn't simply to say, oh, no, 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 please leave. No, it's a swift, stern, maybe even a rude comment to the woman asking her to leave and to stop bringing your children here. You can imagine it done with a bit of anger even. And as they do that, Jesus in turn rebukes them. And he says, let the children alone. Or in the literal Greek, it says, permit the children. Permit the children. Now, before you assume that Jesus was striking a blow against the cultural norms of the day concerning women or children, that's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to upset the culture. What he's doing is he's talking about spiritual matters. And we know that because immediately after the rebuke, he says, something about kingdom program principles. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's our indication that his concern here had to do with the way their attitude would get in the way of performing the needs of the kingdom program. The spiritual demands of the kingdom require that they see kids differently than they were in that moment. Well, let's talk first about what he means by the kingdom program. We've talked about it here in the past. I don't know how many of you were here for that, so it's important to review that just briefly. When I use the term kingdom, or kingdom program, we mean it in different ways. First of all, the kingdom in Jesus' nomenclature or his semantics here is the way we would say heaven, but maybe more generically, being saved. So going to the kingdom, going to heaven, or being saved are all the same basic idea in this context. The reason he calls it the kingdom is because there's a concept in scripture that develops over four stages. The concept of the kingdom. And it starts as a promise. God spoke to Abraham many, many years ago saying, I will bring something to you and your descendants. Ultimately, we know that that promise was of a kingdom to come. It was a promise that he would do it through a Messiah. For a long time, it remained a promise until the Messiah showed up. Then it moved from being a promise to a proposal. Jesus said to the nation of Israel, the kingdom of God is at hand. You can have it now if you would receive me as your king. But Israel rejected him. So the kingdom was not set up in their day. Instead, it moved from a proposal to a program, which is where we sit today. Since the time of the church and onward, Jesus has left and put us in responsible positions to handle the program of the church, which is the program of recruiting people to become citizens of the future kingdom, even before the kingdom itself arrives. So we walk around telling people you can trade in your earthly passport for a kingdom passport by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, and when the kingdom arrives, you'll walk into it with the rest of us. That's the program of the kingdom. And then finally, in a day to come when Jesus comes back, he sets up a literal physical kingdom on this earth and he rules over the earth for a thousand years. That's the place of the kingdom. So the kingdom moves in four stages in scripture, a promise, a proposal, a program, and a place. I don't do a lot of alliteration here, but there's one for you. Right? So Jesus is speaking here about the kingdom. He says the kingdom is made up of such of these. And in the period of time he's looking toward, that is the time when he hands the church off to the disciples after his departure, that's the period he's thinking of here. The kingdom program, the work of the church to recruit citizens for the kingdom, it will be made up of such as these. You cannot turn them away. They are the ministry. Now, what does he mean by that? I think he means it in two central ways. First, I think he means it in a bit of metaphoric speech or figurative speech. What do I mean by that? Well, you notice he says such as these. He makes the point that there's something about children that are indicative of the kind of people 
we want to reach with the gospel. That is, we want to reach people like children, also including children, that's the second half, but the first half is people who are like children. By that I mean people that the disciples had not given enough thought to, that had not given any consideration of. And in that sense, children are a metaphor for people in society that you don't value, you don't see or hear, no one thinks about, they're unimportant, they're below the radar, and they don't matter. That's who the children are for the kingdom, if you think about it that way. People who are without advocates, without rights and privileges, they're poor, they're outcasts, they're persecuted. For that matter, they're Gentiles, which would have shocked the disciples to consider them being part of this plan. Men and women that were never thought to have what it takes to be considered part of God's kingdom. So serving those groups, serving the down and the out and so on, they're not just a part of the program, they are the program. They are the ministry. James tells us that the ultimate expression of true religious behavior, true religion, is that we would go to those who are without power and without privilege. You may remember he says this in his letter, James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So this is what James is saying. He says, When you direct your religious service toward people who are at the bottom of the scale, and in that day and culture, orphans and widows were rock bottom. They were considered the least of society. That was the euphemism. In fact, if you wanted to to say the bottom of society, you would say orphans and widows. Today, I don't know, what would we say? Homeless? But it's the same idea. Who's got the least power, the least privilege, the most vulnerability in our society? That's who they those are the people for their day, orphans and widows. And James says, when we direct our religious service toward that group, we are practicing true religion. What makes it truer than ministering to people who have power or ministering to people who are middle class, let's say? Why is that better in some sense? Well, it's not because that they're more needy and then as a result we're judged better for having served them. It's not in that sense at all. It's because you're serving someone who cannot offer you anything in return for your service which means you have to be doing it with pure motives because why else would you do it, right? You know the poor can't make a donation to your ministry in response to your service, but you serve them anyway. Or the widow is not gonna introduce you to her high society friends who play golf at the private club and get you in on a free day of golf or something. You don't have that personal interest that somehow ingratiating yourself to this need will turn around and help you in some future day. That's where motives get twisted. That's where our service to God gets complicated and it becomes a selfish uh, device as well as perhaps intended for God. That's where we start to muddy the waters for what our heart is doing. But when you serve someone that has no hope to ever do anything for you ever again, you may never see them again, more often than not your motives are pure. And that's what James is talking about. And that's the issue here. These women and children are being shooed away by these disciples Why? Do you think it's because they really want to keep Jesus from being interrupted? They feel like that's their job? They're now bouncers for Jesus' ministry? No. It's because they don't hold these people with any regard. They're not important. They don't matter. They're interrupting important proceedings by important men discussing important religious concerns to have some meaningless child get healed from some common childhood disease that he probably deserved to get anyway. That's the attitude that pervaded in that time and culture. 
These are the kind of people Jesus is telling these men, I'm gonna draw these kind to myself. You're gonna minister to these kind of people. And when they come to the church seeking ministry, because they have need, and the church is there offering to supply something to meet that need, they are not a problem. They are the reason you exist. That's what ministry is. Ministry is meeting needs in some capacity as an opportunity to open a door for a conversation about something eternal. It's a fact of life. How many times in the Gospels have we seen Jesus in a moment in which he approaches someone in some physical need? They're an outcast. Uh, they're a prostitute. Uh, they, they have some other kind of healing, obviously, all the time. And he accepts those needs in the moment and then turns the conversation, if he can, to who he is and what he's there for. Look, if he does that, what, why wouldn't we be doing exactly the same thing, right? Now, how ironic was it for these guys to send away mothers and children in need. Why? Because they were too busy discussing biblical marriage. How ironic, right? They're too worried about what is the proper form of the family. Meanwhile, the family's showing up in need and they're saying, get away. That is classic Pharisaic thinking, by the way. Missing the forest for the trees. Straining out a gnat to swallow a camel. Right? Spending endless hours debating minutia of scripture while simultaneously overlooking its plain and obvious demands. That's so easy to do, by the way, and I think it's particularly a tendency in a church like ours. I'm not saying that we do this, but I'm saying it can happen in a culture that values the Bible and holds Scripture at a high level, which is a good thing, and studies it regularly, which is a good thing. But the challenge is, don't ever think that studying this is the same thing as doing ministry, right? This is the, this is the preparatory work to ministry. This is what prepares you for ministry, but if you never go beyond this, you haven't started doing ministry, and I certainly don't say studying the Bible is wrong. I mean, come on, look at my own ministry. What I'm saying, though, is this. These guys had become very absorbed in the following of Jesus and were not so yet ready to serve Jesus in the serving of people who came to him. That's a fundamental shift they needed to make. So the, the problem is you don't want to forget the purpose in understanding what you're studying. It's so that you can go out and do what Jesus would have done if he was here, right, to take his place in that work. You learn the Bible so you can live like him uh, and serve like him. You understand what he thought and you understand how he acted so that you can mimic that in your, in your own walk with him. I mean, it's a training process. And he's called us to build the kingdom one person at a time. And we do that by valuing everyone that Jesus puts in our path. And normal human prejudice will come and go, and it's part of who we are. We have to fight against that. But this isn't really an issue of prejudice. They weren't prejudiced against children. They just didn't care about children. I think that's actually the bigger threat, that we just have people we care about, and then there's everyone else. And I think in the body of Christ, we have to be different than that, because otherwise, we're just like the world. Because at the end of the day, the church, and fundamentally the kingdom, is not going to be built by winning debates on doctrine or filling our head with knowledge. Kingdom will be built by showing the love of Christ to a lost and dying world, ministering to them first in their physical needs as a bridge to move to conversations about spiritual matters. And that's the key. And I want to reverse this in one sense so that we don't miss another opportunity here. When you go out serving people in what's often said as felt needs, uh, they need clothing, they need food, they need healing, whatever that might be. When you go out serving people in a felt need, you need to make sure you understand the purpose in that is for the kingdom, as Jesus said. The kingdom is ultimately where that, need, that service has to go. So if we go out serving earthly needs, we cannot forget that fundamentally our goal is to reach a point at some time where a conversation about Jesus and the gospel is present in that person's experience with us. Yes, sir. 
If that doesn't happen, we failed in our ministry. We did something good for a body that's going into the grave, and we did nothing for a soul that has an eternal future ahead of it. And that was the whole point. So that needs to never stop being our our focus here, that we turn the circumstances that God gives us into an opportunity for the gospel one way or another. Now, it would be terribly ironic if a church like this, built on the Bible, worked really hard to gain good opportunities to present the truth to people, and then we just never followed through on the presentation of it. That, that would be a real shame. That would have done, we would have done 90% of the work, and the last 10% was failed, and that's the part that matters. So we don't want to solve temporary problems and then fail to address the eternal ones. All right, so let me just add one thought to that, and then we'll move to the second side of this. And the final thought is this. We can all sit here and nod our heads about the fact that that's not who we want to be. Of course not, Steve. We want to serve people with the gospel. We don't want to just feed them and clothe them and all the rest. But let me tell you how easy it is to get into that mindset and not even realize it's coming. Did you know that there are um, present-day secular organizations that originally began as Christian ministries in one form or another? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they were all Christian organizations intent on teaching the Bible and raising up ministers. Now look at them. Uh, You couldn't find more anti-Christian organizations in one sense or another than those. Uh, There are adoption agencies, there are relief organizations, homeless agencies, and others that were originally formed as Christian missions, and yet some of them today will actually prohibit their volunteers from sharing the gospel with the people they serve because they don't want to alienate or offend anyone. Uh, I'm just telling you that because it doesn't take much to shift that a little bit at a time until next thing you know, you've missed the whole point of why you were formed in the first place, and that's clearly not our intent. But we don't want to disobey Jesus' words here in Matthew 19.14. That is, the kingdom of heaven will be built on serving such as these, but as we serve such as these, the down and out, we never forget that the reason we're serving them is the kingdom of God, not some earthly achievement. All right, But there's a second side to this. If we stop right there, and I think a lot of people get to this passage and they stop at about this point and they say, therefore, Christ is saying we need to serve everyone no matter who they are, even the down and out. I think that's true. But then there's the issue of the children themselves. If you notice in verse 15, he calls the children back and he lays hands on them, which is an indication that he healed them. Laying on of hands is a gesture of healing, typically. So it would mean that Jesus wasn't merely interested in the children serving as metaphor, as example. He was actually interested in children, in young children that needed to be brought to him by their mothers, which tells us he's speaking about them in more than metaphor. He's not just speaking about the faith of a child or the situation of a child. He's saying we need to bring the gospel, the kingdom, to children. That tells us he's expecting the disciples to work with children specifically as one category of humanity that deserves to receive the gospel. It is a kingdom made up of such as these, as in these. Children are in the kingdom. Remember what Paul told us would be true about the church in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He said, for consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Now, Paul reaffirms in the first part of that passage what we just learned. That is, that it is in God's purpose to favor those who are the down and out in his plan of salvation over those who are not. There is a reason why the rich and famous of the world are not found proportionally in the church to the same degree that the poor and hopeless are. Now, the rich and the famous will tell you that's because religion is a crutch, and they don't need it because they have money and power, and that explains to them why the church is predominantly made up of the lower class. Paul says it's God's choice because when all is said and done at the final judgment, it will be to the shame of the powerful and the wise that they couldn't find a God with all their wisdom and power that the poor and, and, and destitute found. God uses it to glorify himself. But you notice in the second half of that, the very last part of what I read, he says it is by his doing that we are in Christ Jesus. And in that he alludes to the fact that God has the power to bring to faith anyone he wants at any time he wants. In fact, That is how he does it for all of us. Children of a very young age can be brought to faith by the Holy Spirit. Even a child who is too young to express that faith to an adult can be brought to faith by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible gives us two examples, at least two examples of that happening to prove the possibility of it. The first of those is in the Old Testament. And it's the example of David, who by his own testimony was brought to faith as an infant. In Psalms 22, 8, David writes this, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver you, let him rescue you because he delights in you, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb and you made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth, you have been my God from my mother's womb. Now, David says he exited his mother's womb, cast upon God, and the, and the language in Hebrew suggests almost as if God was there catching David as he came out of the birth canal, so to speak. The idea, I mean, it's, it's very literal because it's poetic, but the point he's making is, I was yours from the very start. In fact, he says, you were my God when I was in the womb. Now, we can say that about everyone, right? God knows us from the womb, etc. But David means it here more literally in the sense that he was marked out for salvation by God while in the womb. And then in verse 9, David says plainly, God made David to trust, meaning to put his faith, to have saving faith. God made David to have saving faith while David was still nursing. That's David's own testimony in Scripture. Now, in that time and in that tradition, children were typically weaned at about age 5. So you could say that David had saving faith sometime before the age of 5. Now, obviously, the Lord moved early in David's life because of where David's life was going to go and what, David intend, what God intended to do with David in that life. But it's also obvious there was no one preaching David the gospel, so to speak, or if there was, there was certainly no one hearing him express it in response. But the testimony of Scripture is he came to faith. And then you have a New Testament example, one that's even more dramatic, and that is of John the Baptist. In Luke's account, On John the Baptist in chapter one, we're told that John the Baptist was marked out by God for saving faith while he was still in the womb. In Luke 1.13, the angel speaking to John the Baptist's earthly father, he says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So while John the Baptist was still in the womb of Elizabeth, the Lord had already given him the Holy Spirit and a mission. And it wasn't going to be any other way. 
It's not as though John had a point at some later time in his life where somebody sat him down and said, John, let me give you a choice. Would you like to serve God in this way or not? Would you like to believe or not? (laughs) There was no plan B. There was only this plan. And God marks him out for it in the womb. Obviously, John had no say-so in that matter, and nor was he in a position to respond to it until some later point. God sovereignly selected John for that special role. He gave John the gift of faith. He gave him the Holy Spirit to ensure that it would be completed. And he did all these things while he was in the mother's womb. Now, what's the point in these two examples? Well, I hope it's obvious. You cannot rule out saving faith for anyone at any time by the power of God. If God can bring faith to David while he's nursing or John while he's in the womb, I defy you to tell me Who is unreachable by God? Someone in a coma? Someone born into a state of vegetation, as we say? Someone who's not able to complete pregnancy and is unborn? None of those people are beyond the reach of God. By definition, if he's done it once, he can do it anytime he wants. And if Saul of Tarsus, now there's some of you out there that are thinking, okay, I'm not too worried about the baby example. I'm worried about the cranky old man that I've been working on for decades and nothing seems to work. Or cranky old woman, maybe. But for that person, let me just say, if Saul of Tarsus, who terrorized and murdered Christians, can be converted, then is any adult too hardened for God to reach? Look, I'm not saying he will do it. That's obviously not in our knowledge to know until it happens. I'm just saying he can. And if he can, then we have every reason to pray that he will and to stay hopeful. Now, we are not all David. We're not all... Paul or John, but my point is, is that God does it for any, he can do it for every one that he chooses. And since we do not know his intentions beforehand, you have to see every person, every child, as a candidate for salvation. To do otherwise is to sell God short, to assume that there's something about the process of salvation that depends on us. God can move in the heart of an individual regardless of age. You can be born again by the Spirit when you're 99 or when you're 9. You can be brought to saving faith when you're 102 or 2. I think in my own case, knowing how my kids grew up, uh, particularly my son, uh, he was a believer from the earliest time I can imagine. There was never a time when I didn't see him in the heart of a believer. And at some point early in his life, he got to the point where he could confess it and he was baptized. But I do not believe that's when he became a believer. It was so evident in his life from a very early age. And uh, my daughter, not, not so much. But we had to kind of break her like a horse. But we got it done. Uh, she was here last night, so if she's watching the live stream, you know, I'll hear about it later. Anyway. And for some of us who would just say, well, Steve, how can a two-year-old confess Christ? I thought you had to confess Christ to be believing. I thought that was the step that brought you to salvation. And we know a two-year-old or a one-year-old or a person in the womb can't utter a confession. Where do we go with that? Well, they may not make a confession, not until they're considerably older, not to the point where they're able to and they're prompted to. We get it. But what we're learning here is that the Spirit can bring faith to the heart years before a person is able to give evidence of it in their body. The the examples of David and John prove that. And isn't it the way it works for all of us when you think about it? And by that I mean this. Isn't the confession of our mouth always a delayed expression of the faith in our heart, even if only by a moment? Even if only by a minute? 
I mean, remember Jesus said in Matthew 15 that what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what dwells in our hearts. Now, he said it there in the, in, in the sense of the negative of sin, but it works the same way in the positive sense, right? So we don't come to faith, that is to say, we're not saved because of what comes out of our mouth so much as we come to a point of a confession because of what's already happened in our heart, which prompted that confession. And the two work together in the way God has done what he's done for the sake of salvation. I'm not saying that they both don't matter. I'm just saying you have to get them in the right priority in order to understand the process properly. And I can give you a few examples to illustrate what I mean. When you say, I'm hungry, does that produce the hunger? Or was it the response to hunger? You say, I have a headache. Is that when the pain started? No. Maybe the best example. Do you say, I love you, to a spouse, and then the affection and the emotion begin? Or are they the response? And obviously the answer is in all cases. Obviously you spoke out of a feeling. And when you speak a confession of faith, it's because something has changed in your heart to prompt that expression. And there can be considerable time pass between the moment somebody has that change in heart, which is done by the Holy Spirit, we call it being born again, and that subsequent moment when, in some set of circumstances, there's a prompting for them to speak it out loud. And if you were the kind of person that had the experience where those two moments were largely coincident, there was a moment in which the gospel was presented and you were moved to a response and you said the words or did whatever they asked of you and it was all in one continuous stream, well, treasure that moment. That's a valuable, powerful memory that others don't have. And I didn't have uh, in my own experience. I know there's a place and time in my life when I was hearing the gospel for the first time and it was, it was making an impact on my heart, but it was muddied by a history of Catholicism and, and agnostic thinking and all kinds of other stuff and I just didn't know what to do with it for a while until there was a knock on my door one day at my house and a guy who was doing door-to-door evangelism said, hey, you know, if you died today, where would you be? And I just knew the answer. I said, I'd be in heaven. And the guy said, oh, why would you think that? And I said, because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And he got a big smile and he said, hallelujah, brother, have a good day. Probably the easiest door he knocked on all day. But I closed that door, and as immediately after I closed that door, I remember thinking, just, just vividly in my head, I remember thinking, that was the confession of faith that God was waiting for. You know, it just needed the moment. It's almost like God was up there saying, come on, we've got to get this guy off the stool. What are we going to do? Send Joe to the door. He'll, he'll get it done. And it was just the moment. It wasn't the moment I was saved. It was the moment I said I was saved, if you want to understand it that way. And then later to that, I got water baptized. You know, you, it's a progression that starts with the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's how God does the work of faith. And that's why the Bible says saving faith finds its home in your heart, not in your head. Have you ever wondered that? The, the God who made your body and knows that the thinking organ in your body is your brain, he knows that. Yet, he writes, believe in your heart. Why don't we have him say, believe in your brain? You know why? Because faith is not an intellectual assent to the gospel. You're not saved because you think something. Salvation comes from a change in your spirit, which the Bible uses the heart as a euphemism for your spirit. So you're changed in your spirit. We call that being born again, given a new spirit by the Holy Spirit's work. The changing of your spirit is something only God can do. You can't change your own spirit. And so as God does that work, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. He changes your heart. He makes you a born-again believer. And then out of that changed heart comes an expression of belief. And you're believing in your heart, not in your head. 
It's similar to love. I, I love the analogy of love. Did you look at your spouse before you married them when you were dating and, and size them up and say, well, let's see, uh, the right hair, the right eyes, right figure, right uh, background, okay, I love them. <laughs> and like blink. Once the math had been done, love, you know, no, of course not. You know, most guys are just, you know, head over heels idiots, foolish guys in love, chasing after the girl, they don't even know why, and later they articulate it, right? If later it comes out, oh, I, I think I love you, right? That's how I think the Lord woos us as well. He comes to us, saves us, changes our heart, and then we spend the rest of our life on earth catching up to what that means. Now, parents, take encouragement and take comfort knowing that God can bring the same grace to your children that he's brought to you, including those you may never have known who did not come into this world as you intended. God's grace is not limited by chronological age. Salvation is not out of reach simply because no one spoke it to you personally, nor is salvation impossible because someone gets old and cranky, right? Until we're leaving this earth, there's opportunity. No one is out of reach. Now, how do we actually put this into practice? I'm not suggesting we start evangelizing infants in the traditional sense. We're not gonna start explaining substitutionary atonement and propitiation to two-year-olds in our children's ministry, okay? That, not in the way we would in here, obviously. I mean, there is a practical reality to this. I'm not saying we bring the salvation to the infant or we bring it to the toddler. What I'm saying is this, we pray for those children, we expose them to things of our faith, we bring the Bible to bear on their life at the earliest age. I don't think it's wrong to read them the Bible when they're one or two or three. What I'm saying though is, it's just about building up an expectation that God can do this work and we're not gonna set any limits on it. And we're just gonna receive what he does. And Jesus says he wants us to receive the children, not just the metaphor of down and out people, but the literal child And I've had parents ask me sometimes, well, if my child says they want to be baptized because they believe and I just think they're too young, what should I do? Hello, baptize them. I mean, think of it in a cost-benefit analysis. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, the worst case scenario is you were too early and they had a bath. Right? I mean, you're not responsible for that. God's not up in heaven saying you did something wrong because you did your best effort to respond, right? You just do it, you know, do it. Now, if you honestly believe the child's playing a game and it's not sincere, well, then don't do it. But if you're not sure and it seems real, but you don't know, it's kind of young, hey, don't sell God short, right? Now, what if it turns out later you think you were wrong? Well, then you just still preach the gospel to him and try again. It's not like you lost your opportunity. I'm just saying that is an attitude that says, I know God can do this. I'm leaning with him into it. I'm looking for it. Not unreasonably, not forcing it. I'm just expecting it. He says, bring me the children because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And the Greek word belong, imai in Greek, it literally is the word exists. So he could have said this, the kingdom of God exists for such as these. Or as I like to say, the church's mission is to reach those very people. The children, those who have no one else to turn to, those who have a need and nowhere else to go. That's why we're here. That's the perfect opportunity to do the work of the church. We can't supply every need. I'll tell you that right now. There's people who come into the building and say, can you do this for me or do that for me? And we sympathize with them in in the best ways we can. But sometimes the best answer for someone like that is, no, I can't give you what you want. But we'll do anything we can, regardless of whatever limits we might face, to show them love and kindness and support, all of that directed toward ultimately showing them about the kingdom if they don't already know. And we do it because that's what the church is about. So as we leave here today, and as we go out into the mission work that you've already heard us talking about, the survey, 
Future efforts, there was a group that went downtown last night, a small group that took on the initiative of going downtown last night and ministering to people in the inner city of San Antonio with the gospel, and I feel like that's something we want to see a lot more of. But as those organic efforts start to develop and you hear about these things, look, we're not just on some little missions uh, uh, theme here for a while. This is a church that will want missions at the heart of everything we do forever. That's what church is about. So if you're in a small group, if you're in a youth ministry effort, if you're in the children's ministry, if you're in some other area, men's, women's, whatever, you should come to expect that missions as an area of work will be incorporated into those areas of ministry as a part of normal business. That's what we do. That's what it's about. And we'll look for anyone who wants to know the gospel. Right? Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you, Father, for the reminder that we're here to serve the people you want to call into the kingdom. You served us in that respect through someone else. And uh, Father, if you can bring us into the kingdom, you can bring anyone. And how uh, glorious is it that you do it through us? And Father, I know the experience when you bring the gospel to someone and they receive it, the joy that leaves you, the, the, the thrill, the excitement that you experience when you see that God has used you to bring someone to, to faith. Father, I I just pray for everyone in here to have that experience at some point. That you would look for an opportunity in their walk to show them what that can be like and as they experience it, Father, it'll just turn them on to doing it all the more and that's what we're here for. I thank you, Father, for the experience when it comes and for the word that teaches us to do it. Give us the courage to carry it out now, Father, in the will that you have stated in your word and in the spirit that you've given us to make it happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.